is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Britain thinks it was a bomb that brought down the Russian jet over Sinai. We ask, what's the next target? The Prime Minister sends a military team to Sharm el-Sheikh, but there's still no sign of a commons vote to go into Syria. MI5 has been hacking our phone calls for 10 years. What's in the Snoopers Charter? And a general says, more money for mental health. Today, there are no flights between Britain and the Egyptian resort of Sharm el-Sheikh, and the British military are already on the ground there checking security systems. Philip Hammond, the Foreign Secretary, appears to be suggesting that the Russian aircraft may have been bombed. And this morning, Egypt's president was at 10 Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister. Well, I'm joined now by James Watt, until last year, British ambassador to Cairo, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Hello. James, if it was a bomb... Who was the target? Was it Russia, Egypt, or was it opportunistic? Well, if it was a bomb, I think the target is clearly clearly Russia, uh, and I don't think it was opportunistic. Such an operation would have had to be extremely carefully planned and executed because uh, for for all the comments that people made about security at Sharm el-Sheikh, it is a pretty pretty well-protected place generally. Britain's response uh, today um, has been, well, yesterday, has been swift and decisive. What do you think? Who is the next target? What is the next target? Is it British tourists? No, I'm glad to say I don't think British tourists, I don't think we can deduce from this incident that British tourists are are the target. Um, But I think the government's been quite right to act decisively. Uh, Its first duty is to protect uh, the lives of British British citizens. And um, until we can be sure of what exactly happened to to, to this uh, very unfortunate airliner with with the tragic losses that were involved, until we know what's happened there, um, we don't know whether the countermeasures and measures we have in place against um, against terrorism are, are, are effective. Christopher Lee, let's talk about the intelligence. Did the American intelligence services know about this before? The suggestion in, in, in Washington and in New York through, through people like the New York Times and the Washington Post is that the Americans have picked up something, technically, technical intelligence, probably the Saturday morning, last Saturday morning. You don't necessarily know, ah... That's a decider, therefore we must take certain actions. But they had not passed that. That has passed to the United Kingdom and maybe a couple of other allies they exchanged with, probably by Monday. But certainly they knew something was going on before it did go on. Well, let's bring in Crispin Blunt, who is the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Hello to you today. Um, With President Sisi's arrival, suggestions from Egypt that Britain is overreacting, that there is a temptation to look for damaged Anglo-Egyptian relations, uh, but surely it's quite the opposite we need at the moment. Well, there is, and... The opposite is what is needed. We need decent relations. Uh, but I just want to go back to that statement by Christopher. Uh, I wonder if he could help us here with exactly what the Americans appear to have known before this bomb went off. Go on, Christopher. The suggestion was that there had been uh, from from maybe a satellite, but it was conversations, and it was probably going through um, uh, mobile telephones, um, and it was just not very much, but it was enough to trigger, I think that's the expression that was used. And if you look at the New York Times was talking about this uh, by Monday morning, that on, on the Saturday they probably knew something was going on, they didn't know what was going on. President Sisi, as we say, has been meeting David Cameron. James, what do you, what do you think the nature of those conversations will be? 
Well, I think it's, it's good timing um, for the two leaders to be able to speak directly and to avoid any, any misunderstandings to get, uh, get things clear. Um, I'm sure this question of uh, how, uh, how reliable this evidence is or this, this belief is that there might have been a bomb, what the future is now for uh, um, uh, British tourists in Egypt, but also uh, tourism more gen generally in Egypt. But even before that, there was still a big agenda we have with, uh, with Egypt, some major players, you know, in regional security. We have common interests in defeating terrorism in restoring stability to the region. And so I think um, I expect the theme of the, of the discussions will be entirely around the theme of security. Crispin Blunt, how useful, how important is Egypt as an ally to fight Islamist extremism? Well, Egypt's an incredibly important country in its own right. Uh, with a population, I think, of something like 90 million, it's very much the biggest Arab power. And Egypt can be used as a... a useful force in our wider contest against Islamic extremism. Uh, uh, where our friends in Egypt may get it wrong is if they lay the ground for inciting uh, jihadist Islamic violence both against themselves and against the rest of us. And the concern here has got to be that the manner of the removal of the Morsi government in 2013 and the actions that followed it with the number of people killed on the streets and the 40,000 people in jail and the people being sentenced to death in batches of 500 uh, and the first-hand evidence of torture that we've received is that uh, the danger is that Egyptian policy um, having perhaps initially stabilised the situation in Egypt then very quickly has gone on to uh, to incite the kind of violence we're now having to deal with. James Watt, do you agree with this? I think there is certainly that risk. Um, I think everybody wants to see Egypt on a, on a more stable path uh, towards uh, inclusive, inclusive government. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, Egypt has shown itself to be different from what many people assumed and predicted during the years following the January 2011 revolution. I agree with Tyler Crispin, but at the same time, I think we should keep a very open mind about what Egyptians really want for their country and uh, what's achievable uh, by, by, by what they have there. Just, just tell us a bit more, James, uh, uh, what about this area, the Sinai Desert. Well, it's home to about half a million, uh, uh, basically Bedouin, uh, original, original inhabitants there. And uh, the Sharm el-Sheikh um, uh, area has been carved out as an as a excellent uh, tourist destination. Um, but it's been carved out in a way which effectively seals it off from the rest of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. And the people working there are vetted and brought in uh, largely from outside Sinai, largely from the Delta and from, from, from the rest of Egypt. Uh, and they come without their families uh, because uh, the authorities want to concentrate on providing services to tourism um, and not to have a kind of uh, normal city growing up, as it were, around the tourist site. And they come, they work hard. Um, tens of thousands of families, perhaps more, depend directly on the, um, on, on the salaries uh, that, that these, these workers earn. Uh, it's of huge importance to, to Egyptians and to, to the Egyptian economy. Uh, and I think Britain has been great in the way that we've always tried our utmost while preserving the safety of our citizens to do anything possible to avoid damaging uh, those livelihoods un un unnecessarily. And we took, I don't say we took risks, but we were braver than many other, and in fact every other Western or other country. 
uh, in the way we did our travel advice mm. for the last nearly five years. Don't we, forget also we'll, that this is this is an area you know which was fought over. That the Israelis took it or took it gave it back to the Egyptians. It is also an area uh, where the, the Bedouins, for example, with their terrible grievances, the, the fact that they're banned from certain jobs, they don't get the profits of tourism, etc. And then this all. As you say, uh, it's worsened after the uh, in 2013, and you got this rising of Ansar Ansar Beit Al Makhdi, which uh, is, de- is a proper organised jihadist uh, organisation, um, which was probably responsible for. Do you remember the North Korean tourist bus back in 20, 2014? Uh, and now they are pledged to be part of ISIS. And so it is a difficult place to be and it's a difficult place to have absolute security. Oh. And if you were looking for a source of any uh, m- mechanical disaster, you might look no further than there for the conduit in which it might have passed. Mm. Uh, James Watt, former ambassador to Cairo, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll move on now to Syria. Crispin Blunt, your Foreign Affairs Committee reported this week that it would be, to say the least, unwise for the UK to join the global, global coalition bombing operations over Syria. Why did you say that? Well, there's no particular military benefit. There's a uh, limited amount of arguable military utility for having the H British aircraft able to fly uh, from Iraq into, in, into Syria. But the price of that is uh, weakening our diplomatic hand, having to come to Parliament to have a vote in uh, very controversial circumstances and making a negligible military difference to the outcome. And what we've actually got to focus on is the outcome. And the clear view of the committee is that we shouldn't be asking British servicemen uh, to uh, go into combat unless it's part of a clear and coherent plan. Uh, in Syria, the complexity of getting a... Uh, international plan is plainly huge, but it, that that is the first necessary task. I mean, the outcome seems to be a bit of a problem, doesn't it, for, for the British government at the moment? When you look, we're just talking about Egypt and their big complaint is the outcome of Libya and how that's threatening them at the moment. Um, I mean, do you think we're going to get this vote on Syria? Where do you think the Prime Minister really stands on this at the moment? Well, frankly, whether the British Parliament has a vote on Syria and the deployment of eight aircraft is Largely you say ir- eight aircraft. Is that, do you think that's well, really rather miserly, really, and not, not a big deal? Well, that's what we're deploying over Iraq, and we don't have very many tornadoes, uh, and some of them need to be kept behind in the United Kingdom to defend our own airspace. Uh, so there, is, there, is, there are issues about the actual size of our... actually, the, what capability we have if we really wanted to go for this full tilt, and no-one is suggesting that we're going to significantly raise the number of uh, aircraft operating there. So that's the, 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 the first thing. So we're not, we wouldn't be making any serious military difference and a vote in the United Kingdom Parliament um, to deploy these aircraft is missing the point Uh, the point is the international community as a whole has to get its act together we've got to uh, and it's begun to do so with the process that began in Vienna last weekend all the key countries were finally around the table talking to each other so the Iranians were there for the first time the Iranians and the Saudis have serious issues which they've got to resolve the Americans and the Russians have serious issues they've got to resolve and what we do have in common is the common interest of defeating ISIS, and that means taking the territory that they currently hold in both Iraq and Syria. And our focus as a country should be absolutely on the, this stage, on the diplomatic track of getting the international players all in the same place and focusing on that mission. You, work, you worked with the Commons Defence Committee on the report that you released this week. What kind of insights did they bring? 
Well, we had a joint session with them taking evidence from uh, uh, General Sir Simon Mayle, who used to be the government's uh, Middle East advisor, and uh, uh, other witnesses uh, on who had both experience both related to foreign policy and defence. It seemed appropriate to do a joint session and to get the perspective of members of the Defence Committee. Uh, and so I think that they all reportedly find it very useful, but just in terms of the the views uh, and of the formal processes we have, this was this report was a report of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And the bigger issue here, the, the one that you, you, you're pointing to, is the number of times that governments get into big operations without properly thinking through the consequences. Why does history seem to repeat itself like this? Very good question. And we're having an inquiry into uh, our is intervention it, it, in Libya in 2011 uh, as a committee. And uh, at this stage, I'm uh, uh, battling to control the scope of that inquiry hmm. uh, because uh, uh, select committees don't quite have the resources that have been made available to Sir John Chilcott or indeed the powers to uh, demand papers uh, that are, you know, would, be, would be classified that would not then be available to us. So I've got to work out how to drive to the core of the uh, Libyan issue uh, without creating a vast bureaucratic uh, paper chase uh, to doing that as well, which would overwhelm the resources available to me. But I think we're going to get there. Um, but it, but it's the same issue. It's repeated time after time after time. And my view is these mistakes began uh, when we drew the wrong conclusions from events in Rwanda and events in Kosovo. Uh, and uh, perhaps, uh, and we've then seen the consequences uh, thereafter. Christopher. I was just wondering that uh, when you when you come to Libya and look at the reasons, I wonder if you can call, for example, uh, Mr. Sarkozy and ask him if he thinks that the Prime Minister was actually trying to play catch-up with, um, with the impressions in Libya uh, that uh, it was the French, in fact, that were leading on this. Well, that point was made uh, to us by the first two witnesses we had to our inquiry, that mm. this was an operation that was, uh, <laughs> in practice, led by President Sarkozy, and uh, they, they made exactly that point. We will have to take further evidence so to see whether or not that, that, that charge, if it's, if it's a charge, sustains itself. Just before we go, when are we going to see the results of that inquiry? Uh, well, uh, what I want to do is <laughs> avoid... Got, I know you've got enough work to do. I, I, I want to, we're a very busy committee. We're doing so, a, sooner than the uh, Chilcot so, inquiry, I assume. Well, uh, 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 possibly. I guess the possibly. Chilcot inquiry is good. good well, Lord. Uh, because there's a group... There's a great deal of work. Uh, there's a great deal of work to do, and mm. uh, what I want to do is to try and contain the scope of it and still get to the core of the issues. All right. And I don't want. I don't want to constrain myself with a uh, with an artificial deadline. I have a planning deadline, uh, but I think I better remain an internal planning deadline. And this, that was I hope, this, and this I hope. Side, side well, step there, but Chris I hope this is, this is part of the work of the first year of this Parliament, right. and, and that year Good. ends in May. Thank you very much, Christian Blunt. Sit rep with. Still to come, the former army chief who says more should be spent on mental health. This is BFBS. Sit rep. This week, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, published the first draft of what the lazy called the Snoopers Charter and what the informed call the Investigatory Powers Bill. Well, basically, to what extent can the intelligence services get into our emails and our phone calls? Let's not go over the rights or wrongs of this draft bill. It's all the party support. It still has a long way to go and could be changed before it becomes law. What we want to know is how could it affect the services home and abroad? Well, let's speak 
speak to the former Defence Secretary and Foreign Secretary and Intelligence Committee Chairman, Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Good to speak to you today. And um, this Definitely. bill, this this bill gets called the Snoopers Charter because it, it's a good headline, but it does get inside the privacy versus security debate. In your former role as Defence Secretary, you must you must have used it and you must have been informed about it when you were Foreign Secretary. How do you get the balance right? Don't assume that I would have used it. The, the ministers who are in charge of the intelligence agencies who are involved are the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary for uh, things that happen overseas, uh, the Home Secretary for the, the, the home base. Uh, occasionally I would have received intelligence information, but that would not necessarily have been achieved through interception. There are various ways in which the agencies obtain the information they need. But w- w- where does the balance lie? W- where do you get it right? How do you get it right? Uh, I think the crucial point that everyone needs to uh, understand is there is no general right to snoop on the public. That is simply not permitted. Uh, first of all, the intelligence agencies can only intercept the emails or the uh, phone communications of people who they have reason to believe are either committing terrorist acts or serious crimes. And even then, if they want to do that, they have to get permission from the relevant minister who will not give that permission unless there's evidence that justifies it. So the vast majority of people who are neither criminals nor terrorists uh, are not having their uh, emails uh, routinely examined in the way that some rather foolish people suggest. Of course, uh, the kind of information that can be gleaned from this kind of intelligence obviously feeds back to the military. They have a special interest in what's going on in this whole debate. Information itself is relevant to what they're having to do. I mean, if, for example, you have a military operation in Afghanistan uh, and there is some intelligence which is obtained of terrorist attempts to uh, put IEDs or uh, other booby traps somewhere in the locality, then obviously that information would be immediately passed on to the relevant British Army or possibly Afghan Army uh, people in order to protect them from uh, the Taliban or others who are wishing to harm them. Did you ever get into conversations of this nature when you were the Defence Secretary with the military? Uh, No, not when I was Defence Secretary. I mean, there is a Defence Intelligence Network, but that doesn't actually carry out this kind of operation. Uh, what, what you're interested in today, I presume, is actually interception of emails and uh, voicemails and matters of that kind. Um, now, certainly that is something when I was chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee, we had oversight of MI6, of MI5, GCHQ, and I did that for five years until earlier this year. Uh, that was one of the big areas which we did examine to make sure that the, the law was being observed and uh, that the agencies only Uh, were able to carry out these activities when they had reason to believe that the individuals they wished to examine uh, were either terrorists or serious criminals. And what about the military themselves? Do you think they should be allowed to task the intelligence services to get into communications because of their special security position? Well, the military are really involved in military operations and they are therefore answerable to their own commanding officers and through their commanding officers to the Secretary of State for Defence and there are rules of engagement, there are a whole series of rules that lay down what the military can do and what they can't do. And that is right and proper because the military, although they have special privileges to use weapons and to do what is required in defense of the United Kingdom, do so under a legal system. They don't just have free reign to do whatever they like. Is that a no, then? 
Well, you remind me what the question is. Now I'll give you a guess. <laughs> Whether they should be allowed to task the intelligence services, the military. They can't. They can't task. Uh, if if they have a specific operational need for better intelligence, that's a different matter. Uh, they would report that to their commanding officer. If the commanding officer has felt that something was required, then either the defence intelligence system would be able to help them, or in special cases, the, the Ministry of Defence might ask uh, the uh, Home Secretary or the Foreign Secretary uh, to assist in uh, one of the, the other intelligence agencies, GCHQ, MI6 or MI5, uh, helping them. So there is close cooperation, absolutely so, um, but they cannot be directly tasked in mm. the way that your question implied. Our, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this. Christopher? I was thinking there are now, I think it's nine intelligence agencies in the United Kingdom, including the National Crime Agency. Um, the complexity of moving around information and what different people require from that information and then their contacts with overseas other intelligence agencies and the arrangements they have uh, from stretching from New Zealand to the CIA and back into London. This all sounds extraordinary, a complicated organisation to run, but it isn't. And that's what's fascinating. If you look in the House at the moment, um, Malcolm, there's, there's, there's hardly any opposition to this draft bill, is well, there? Well, two points. First, on the, the earlier comments you've just made, I agree with you. It, it is a complex uh, matter because there are a number of agencies. But what is very different today compared to 10, 20, 30 years ago is these agencies um, work very, very closely together. If you went into GCHQ in Cheltenham, you would find people from MI5 or MI6 also working there. If you went into MI5 or MI6, you would find the same in regard to the other agencies. So they all work under a much closer uh, interconnected remit. And, of course, they come under the National Security Council, which was only introduced five years ago, chaired by the Prime Minister, and which the heads of the intelligence agencies also attend in order to assist its work. So we have a much more disciplined system than used to be uh, the case. I think you also asked about the fact this is not very uh, controversial in Parliament. It's also not very controversial with the public compared to a country like Germany or some of the other countries uh, in continental Europe. And I think it's basically been because uh, in the case of the United Kingdom, we've been very lucky. Uh, we've never had a, a dictatorship, a fascist or communist dictatorship. And therefore, our intelligence agencies are not seen uh, by the vast majority of people as a threat to their liberty. I mean, who's the best-known best figure from the intelligence agencies? James Bond, <laughs> the romantic, uh, harmless uh, figure of a kind that people admire and look up to. Now, That's all... because he's an Aston Martin driver. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's all fantasy, but it's fantasy. Uh, you couldn't have a James Bond figure in Germany, because it's too painful. Too... They had the Stasi in East Germany spying on every East German, and before that they had Hitler's Nazis. And he certainly couldn't drive a VW nowadays. Mm. <laughs> well, that's for slightly different reasons. Clearly <laughs> the intelligence wasn't and as... on that note, we, we must leave it. You, we're going into car-driving territory. It's gone too far. So, Malcolm Rifkin, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, let's just talk about what else is around this week. And tomorrow, the presidents of China and Taiwan are meeting in Singapore. Um, this is the first in a, in a long time. Uh, 1949. But you see, what, what happened is that the, the, the people in Kuomintang, the KMT, which were fighting Mao Zedong back in the days of the for, formation of communist China, they legged it. They went off and set up a set up home in Taiwan. The important thing about this is the tensions in China at the moment and the tensions in Taiwan. There is a, 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 
uh, an election next year. The present regime is very pro-China. They could be pushed out. And in the meantime, the British, the Americans and a few other countries are sending their ships into the South China Sea where the, uh, where the Chinese are building artificial uh, islands and corals. And the Americans particularly are saying, look, we're going to challenge this. And if we're going to challenge this, the Chinese are saying, you try it and we will produce circumstances that you won't favour. Now, uh, former military leaders have joined a celebrity-backed campaign to increase funding for mental health services. Lord Richards and Lord Dannett have both signed an open letter calling for mental health to be treated as seriously as other illnesses. Well, earlier I spoke to the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, and I asked him what prompted him to join the campaign. Well, Norman Lamb has taken the initiative on this one, and as a former health minister, he knows these issues extremely well and extremely closely, and I think he's absolutely right. Um, Injuries, illness, they come in all shapes and forms. But I think most people would agree that mental injury and mental health issues have been the Cinderella of overall health programmes in recent years. And given the very high incidence of whether it's civilians, military, family members, whoever, who suffer from some form of mental illness, and it might just be depression or low-level anxiety, which, if unrecognised and untreated, can become much more serious. And in the case of the military, particularly those who have been involved in combat operations into full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, this really brings forward the need to say we need to put a greater emphasis on mental health issues and, and strive for parity between mental health treatment and physical injury treatment. Yes, and we know that you've had to deal with extremely harrowing situations yourself in your military career, notably when in 1975 your platoon commander, who you were with, was among four soldiers killed by an IRA explosion. Did, did your mental health ever suffer? Um, I think we're all different. I mean, I sometimes do reflect on things that happened to me, particularly as a young officer, um, seeing people killed, having people shot beside you, uh, the incident you referred to was my company commander, in fact, um, lovely man. I was the last person to speak to him, being blown up with three others right in front of me. And these things affect people differently. But the fact they affect you differently, and some people don't suffer from it, but others do, is no criticism of those who do suffer. It's just a reflection that I'm a human being of some characteristics, you're a human being with different characteristics, we're all different, and people react differently to different situations. So that makes it all the more necessary and important that when someone is suffering as a result of what they've seen, heard, smelt, or experienced, that they should feel they can go to the medical officer, they can go to their GP and say, hey, doc, I think something's wrong. And at that point, they need to be taken seriously. And having been taken seriously, treatment of the right sort must be made available. Now, there's not enough treatment available in the NHS, in the civilian world, or indeed still in the military world. We've got to get an increase in mental health um, spending, mental health provision, and bring it up to something approaching, or ideally parity, with physical injuries and physical sickness. And briefly, what kind of experience do you think the military can usefully share with the civilian world in dealing with mental illness? Well, I think there's always been a good crossover. Um, in recent years, particularly over our experiences in Iraq and more recently in southern Afghanistan, I mean, in both those operations, over 220,000 British service people have been deployed. 
And a number of those, a large number of those, have seen and experienced things that have caused or given rise to mental health issues. And it's only right that we recognise that. And I think that some of the treatments that we are developing uh, have a read across uh, to the civilian world. But I think the big thing is that wherever best practice is, it might be in the military environment, it might be in the civilian environment, it might be... I don't know, in the A&E units of hospitals that deal with motorway crashes, wherever best practice is and people know what the best things to do are, that needs to be benchmarked and rolled out more widely right across the NHS system and the military healthcare system so that people who are in need get the best possible treatment. And, of course, it will mean extra cash going to the mental health area at a time when the NHS is hugely under financial pressure. That was the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett. Um, Peter Donaldson, the veteran BBC Chief Newsreader, has died this week. He was very proud that he started his career at BFBS Cyprus. And Christopher, an old friend of yours. Very, very much a friend of mine, yes. Um, uh, he was the most charming person to work with. Now, everybody has nice things to say about people, but uh, he was totally different. Uh, started work at BFPS in Cyprus, uh, lived and worked in Aden, uh, worked in Bonn, I think, as well. Then he joined Radio 2, BBC mm. Radio 2, and then eventually he escaped to the sort of middle class, middle brow of, of Radio 4, where he, he became chief newsreader, but took him on and took on especially the controllers. No wonder you liked he him. He hated the controllers. He thought they were a <laughs> big bunch, as he put it, pillocks. Uh, <laughs> and, and, in fact, he led a revolt when the, the, one of the controllers tried to shorten the Today programme. Mm. And, and he went on and he said, uh, <clears throat> right, now, up to the hour, which was the, what it was called, uh, you could go and listen to Radio 2 and Radio 3, of course, but if you're stuck, listen to Radio 4. But <laughs> I hadn't seen him for a bit, and he said to me, oh, I know. He said, I didn't recognise you at first. But I recognise the suit. Mm, same one, eh? It was the same. It was the same. <laughs> same suit. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors, and of course our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS Sitrep. Don't forget the podcast. Search for us on iTunes and join us again next week. From me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon. Bye bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2.